You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. Hey, hey, how's everybody doing? We are really glad that you're here. So let me just tell you one thing real quick, and that is, I went late in all the services, so we're getting started late. I'm sorry. Um, Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I'm going to tell you all about that in just a minute, but I do have this important thing, and that is, this is the service that we're going to put up on the podcast because I skipped like three pages of my notes to end late. So anyway, so we're done when we're done. So... If you got somewhere to be, I get it, but we're done when we're done, okay, if we're we're cool with that. All right, thanks. All right, so uh, yeah, so I turned 50 yesterday, and um, yeah, thanks. And my my friends and family threw me the best party I have ever been to. Uh, It was amazing. Uh, I got there, and uh, there were M&Ms with my face on them. I, I'm telling you, they just tasted a little better, and, uh, and they're so good. They had this, uh, so everyone who got there, they got this bag, and inside the bag was this envelope, and it had what were called Bob Bucks. This was money without, um, th- they had my face on them, not former presidents, and, uh, and then you could spend it on, you know, whatever that was at the party, all this, you know, like candy that I like and treats that I like, and then um, there were cookies of me, and it turns out I am delicious. So anyway, and it really softened the pain of turning 50 Um, because, you know, when you're, and I know a lot of you are younger than me, but uh, birthdays get a little strange as you get older because when you're a little kid, your birthday just can't get get here fast enough because, you know, the days are like forever, right? And then you get older and man, I'm telling you, my wife started talking about my birthday. I'm like, didn't we just do this? Like, it was like, what, around a year ago we did this? Anyway, so, and so I've been asked all morning, you know, people have been so kind and wishing me happy birthday, and, you know, what does it feel like to be 50? And here's what it feels like to be 50. It's, it's lower back pain <laughs> with some heartburn and a touch of inflammation. That's what, that's what it feels like to be 50. And, uh, and this is how you know uh, the thing about 50 is that, uh, di- the, at least the difference, and I realized this when my son turned eight. And by the way, it was my son playing guitar here, and, um, and it was my daughter Mia that sang the last song, and uh, yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, I mean, I'm always, I'm just, I'm so moved whenever she sings, I, I just, I'm a mess, and then I gotta like handle myself before I come up here. Um, but when you're young, when you're young, you know, when my son turned eight, he got like, you know, emails from like the places where he was conducting business, right? He got, he got it. uh, he got an email from, you know, Jeffrey from Toys R Us, back when Jeffrey was still alive, and, uh, you know, wishing him a happy birthday. He got an email from Nintendo. Uh, he got, you know, GameStop wished him a happy birthday. So this week, let me tell you who wished me a happy birthday. The urgent care that I go to. Uh, uh, the Publix Pharmacy. Um, I got a letter from the AARP this week, and I got a shout-out from a local funeral home. <laughs> Eagerly awaiting you to become our customer. So that was a little odd. And, and you know, that's just one of the things that's strange about 
getting older. I, I was looking in the mirror. This is like two weeks ago. I'm looking in the mirror. I'm like, wow, they're getting so big. And my wife hears me. She's like, I know the kids are growing so fast. I'm like, no, I'm talking about the hair coming out of my ears. And because uh, as you know, I don't know if you know this. And if you don't, you know now that, that you don't actually lose hair. It just goes underground. And then you lose it on your head and it just comes, starts coming out your ears and your back. That's how that, and you're like, I didn't need to know that. I'm here to preach the truth. All right. So I got to tell you what's going on. So, and uh, so, <laughs> but I can do, you know, I mean, the, I can still do pretty much most things that I want to do. It's just that the next day there's a price to be paid depending on what you do. And so I, um, I was getting my vitamins together the other day, and the kids were like, Dad, did you get your green vitamin? And I'm like, kids, those aren't vitamins. That's Advil. And so, just so you know. Anyway, but here's the thing, and I think this is the challenge that all of us, that all of us feel is, and this is why it, it, it's a struggle sometimes to get older, and it's a, it's a struggle to, you know, because we want to present ourselves in the best light possible. And it's not just true for you or me or us. It's true for all people. It's true even when it's ideas. We want to present our ideas in the best light possible. It's true for nations. And as we look at problems in the Middle East, and we started last week as we looked at what it looks like for the future, I wanted to spend some time going backwards and looking at the past and what led us to where we are. But as we look at problems in the Middle East, each side is trying to represent their own position in the best light possible. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, you know, what, what do we do? How do we, as Christians, look at this situation without being influenced by the media, without being influenced by propaganda, and instead allow the Bible to influence our worldview? Because as Christians, the thing that should influence what we believe and how we think should be the Bible, even above our own feelings— why? Because our feelings, and it's true for you, for me, it's true for all of us, our feelings are fickle. Our feelings change all the time. And so what wisdom dictates is for us to even submit our feelings to the truths of God so that the Bible can then inform us. Now, when we look at Bible prophecy, one of the things that we've, we've said this uh, previously, and we said it last week, and I'll say it again, Bible prophecy shows Israel back in their land. And however, other people have made claims as to who the land belongs to. And if not all of it, then certainly parts of it. So I think the good thing for us to do would be to begin with the question. And that is, to whom does the land belong? And then we'll kind of take it from there. But in short, the land ultimately belongs to God. And I don't say this just like philosophically. Uh, I say this very practically and uh, if you grab your outline, and by the way, we're going to do a lot of work in the outline today, not just fill-ins. I'm going to have you underline stuff because I want you to have as a, this as a reference to go back to when you're having conversations with people, when you're, uh, hey, what did he say about that? And where was that verse? Underline it, star it, circle it, whatever you need to. But I want you to see this. This is the first verse in your outline, Leviticus 25. It says this, the land must not be sold permanently. Underline this, because the land is mine. And you reside in, underline this, my land as foreigners and strangers. The land of Israel could not be sold permanently. It could only be sold, it could be sold, but it had to go revert back to its original owners after uh, every 50 years. And so uh, that, there would be something that was called the Jubilee year. And in the Jubilee year, everything reverted back to its original ownership and all debts were canceled. And I, by the way, I'm very for that here in America. Do you imagine you get a call from Amex? Hey, we didn't get your payment this month. Jubilee year, never call here again. You know, anyway, that's what I'm thinking. And then, you know, but you got to keep, not get yourself into trouble. So that's why Dave Ramsey helps us. Anyway, so, but, but the thing is this, is that 
the family from every tribe, and there was 12 tribes in Israel that the, where the land got divided up, but God entrusted the stewardship of the land to these tribes. So while the, the land is his, he did give it to someone. And so God makes a covenant with Abraham. And as he makes a covenant with Abraham, he promises to give the land to him and to his descendants after him. And this is really important. So we're going to read, this is the next verse in your outline in Genesis 17. Uh, I will establish my covenant, underline this, as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Now underline this, the whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a stranger, I give you as an everlasting possession to you and to your descendants after you, and I will be their God. So God gives Abraham this promise. To you and your descendants, I give this land. But the challenge is, is that Abraham has more than one son. Abraham has two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. He later has more kids. After his wife Sarah dies, he marries again. I'm not going to get into that whole thing, but you can read Genesis 25, talks about all that. Or, I'm sorry, Genesis 23. So, but Isaac and Ishmael. Uh, Isaac is the father of the Jewish people. Ishmael is the father of the Arab people. Isaac inherits the promise of Abraham as the heir. Ishmael was born out of a relationship that Abraham has with a woman named Hagar, who was someone that worked in his house. Now, because Sarah was unable to have children, this was a form of surrogacy at the time, with the child being considered the child of Abraham and Sarah, but Sarah didn't like how this all went down. Even though it was her idea and she told Abraham to do it, she didn't like how it went down. So Hagar leaves with her son, and God promises to bless Ishmael as well, just bless him in a different way. In fact, let me read, the, read this to you in Genesis 17. It says, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall no longer not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her. And also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her. She shall be a mother of nations and kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now pause there for a second and notice what's happening. Is that God is telling Abraham, you're going to have a son, Sarah's going to have a son, and he's the one who's going to inherit the promise. And here's what Abraham says. Why don't you just let it be Ishmael? Let Ishmael live before you. Let him be the one who inherits the promise. And here's God's answer. Then God said, no. Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful, and I will multiply him exceedingly, and he shall beget twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. The promise that God gives to Abraham is many things, but one of them is that the land that becomes known as Israel is the inheritance of the sons of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, I know some people, don't, they want to call it Palestine and not Israel. And why is that? So let's go back in time if we can. Let's go back in time to 70 AD. 70 AD, the Jewish people are in the fourth year of a rebellion against Rome when finally the Roman 10th legion comes in, marches into Jerusalem, destroys the temple uh, in Jerusalem and much of the city. Jews begin to scatter at that time, and that marks what is called the Diaspora. 
Now, I know it's tough. He's, he's with me, right? The, the diaspora is when the Jews are scattered throughout all the earth. Now, let's fast forward 50 years. It's 120 AD. The emperor Hadrian gives the Jews permission to rebuild the temple. They're very excited. The problem is, is that there are Samaritans. Samaritans were, lived to the northern part of Israel, and they were uh, half Jewish and then half of the other nations that began to dwell in the land of Israel after the Assyrian captivity in 722 BC. I know I'm throwing out a bunch of dates. Just jot them down. It all makes sense in, in a bit. Now, uh, but there was all kinds of problems. Even in Jesus' day, there was all kinds of problems with Samaritans, uh, and you'll see that in John chapter 4. But they go to the, the Samaritans go to the emperor, and they tell Hadrian, the reason they want to rebuild the temple is that they want to revolt again. Well, Hadrian's like, no way. We're not dealing with revolts again. We're not doing this. The work was stopped. Let's fast forward 12 years. Now it's 132. The Jews revolt led by a man named Simon Bar Kofka. Bar Kofka was believed by Rabbi Akiva, who to this day is one of the most revered rabbis in Judaism. Rabbi Akiva believed that Simon was the Messiah. He gathers thousands of people to his cause, of course, with the endorsement of Rabbi Akiva, and then they slay the famous Roman 12th legion. I mean, this is just huge. And they actually overthrow Rome. That, that is, they kick Rome out of Israel for the period of about 36 months. And so then, because they kick Rome out, they start minting their own coins. Um, they, in fact, you can, if you go online, you can find this. There's one that says, uh, the first year of our deliverance. The one that I really like, and the one that I'm going to show you here, this is one that they had minted that actually has a picture of the temple because their goal was to begin the work on the temple that they weren't able to do uh, 12 years uh, previously. Well, the problem is within those 36 months, Rome retakes Israel. They kill Simon. They kill his followers. They kill the Sanhedrin, the 71 member of the Jewish Supreme Court. He gets labeled as a false messiah and Rome regains control. But now they've had it. At this moment, after this, Hadrian builds a temple to the god Jupiter on the Temple Mount. He makes it illegal for any two Jews to be caught speaking together publicly in the street because there's never going to be any more rebellion if they can't talk to each other. So they're not allowed to talk to each other in public. Hadrian is so enraged by all this, he changes the name of the city of Jerusalem to Aelia Capitolina. Aelia is his family name. So this is essentially means uh, Jerusalem is now the capital of Hadrian. Uh, Jerusalem was changed, uh, Aelia Capitolina was changed back to Jerusalem in 324 AD when Constantine, uh, who is the emperor of Rome, has a conversion experience, becomes a Christian, and then uh, changes the name back. But not only did he change the name, uh, did Hadrian change the name of Jerusalem, Hadrian changed the name of Israel. Um, and he wanted to slight the Jews, and so he named it after the Philistines, who were the perennial enemies of the Jewish people. And so the word Philistine in Latin is the word Palestine, and that's how we get that word today. They rename it because they want to purge any idea of, of Jewish identity to the land. By the way, it's the same reason the British used it, and by the way, and some people use it because they just don't realize, but Sometimes the reason it's used to this day is to deny the Jewish identity of Israel. Now, at this point, it's 132 AD, and Israel is no longer exists. Now it's Palestine. Jerusalem is Aelia Capitolina. Israel completely ceases to exist as a nation for now the better part of 1,700 years. And then things start happening around the end of the 19th century that starts set into setting into motion the reestablishing of the nation of Israel that will culminate after 
the horrors of World War II. It's in this vein that the prophet Ezekiel, 2,600 years ago, when he's watching the people of Israel be carried away into captivity by the Babylonians, he's, he's prophesying to them about things that are going to happen, but then he starts prophesying beyond what's happening now. It's not just about Israel coming back into the land after the 70-year captivity. It's about what's going to happen way further in the future, and that's where we're going to begin in uh, Ezekiel 36, uh, verse 1. It says this, and once again, hang on to your notes. I'm going to have you circle a couple of things. It says, And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because, underline this, the enemy has said to you, Aha, underline this, the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, because they made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side, so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations, and you are taken up by the lips of talkers and slandered by the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, the valley, the desolate wastes, and the cities that have been forsaken, which became plunder and mockery for the rest of the nations around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I have spoken in my burning jealousy out of the rest of the nations and against all Edom, underline this, who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and spiteful minds in order to plunder its open country. And if you pause there and give me your attention, we're going to talk about three things in our time together. Number one is this, that Israel has a right to exist. It has a right to exist. Ezekiel is told to speak to the land of Israel because Israel's enemies have declared that the land is theirs, not Israel's. Now this is the challenge that Israel has faced since their rebirth in 1948. They became a nation on May 14th of 1948, and on May 15th of 1948, the War of Independence began. Why? Because the Arab nations did not recognize Israel. This is why what we saw happen in uh, 2020 in what's called the Abraham Accords is, is such a big deal. When we saw Israel and the United uh, Arab Emirates, we saw this uh, peace with them, peace with Israel and Bahrain, and what's happening right now with Israel and Saudi Arabia. It's not just that they want peace. One of the things that they are doing is that they are acknowledging Israel's right to exist. And here's the challenge that most have, that most people think, you know, these folks just disagree. We just got to sit down at a table and buy some snacks and just kind of hammer it out and we'll just, we'll come up with an agreement. No, it's not that easy. Why? Because one side doesn't want the other to exist. And the only way that we can there can be any type of peace in the Middle East is for Arab countries to recognize Israel's right to exist. This is the fundamental problem that politicians just can't seem to figure out. They think that this is an argument over land primarily. It's not. The primary argument is over a people group's worthiness to exist at all. And when Ezekiel says that the enemy has taken the land of Israel as a possession and that God is going to give it back to them, I mean, we've seen this happen over the last hundred years. And this is exactly, by the way, what created the, the Palestinian refugee crisis, which I'm going to talk about in a moment. So let's do this. Let's go back. Let's go back to 1967. No, let's go back to 1948. We'll start there. So here's what Israel looked like when they gained their independence in 1948. Everything in yellow. This is Israel. So they don't have... 
the Golan Heights. They don't have the West Bank. They don't have East Jerusalem. All of that belongs to Jordan. They don't have the Gaza Strip, and they don't have this area of Egypt that's called uh, the Sinai uh, Desert, which is called the Negev. Now, uh, if I can see the other uh, map. So this is essentially what it looks like, and you can see who it belongs to, but this is all the way down to Elat. That is the southernmost city in Israel. I've been to Elat. The first time I ever had a latte was in Elat. And uh, I didn't know this. I, I was young. I, was 20. I landed in Israel on my 26th birthday. And, um, and, and so I went to a Starbucks, and I ordered. Someone told me that I would like a latte, so I went there, and I ordered one. I didn't know it was just a fancy cafe con leche. I've been hooked ever since, but it was right there in Elat. And then it's right on the Red Sea, so I walked about a block to the Red Sea and stuck my hand in it so I could say that I've been in the Red Sea. I politely asked for it to part for me. It did not, by the way, but it never hurts to ask. So, but I want you to notice something. I want you to notice that Gaza belongs to Egypt, and this is important, and then this whole area, this Sinai Peninsula, uh, belongs to Egypt as well, and that's really important. And uh, why? Because less than 20 years later, in 1967, there was a five-country coalition that attacked Israel. Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, and Lebanon. All of these countries just before had said this kind of famous declaration, no peace, no recognition, no negotiations. That is, no peace with Israel, no recognition that they are real or, or have a right to exist, and no negotiations with them. All five of these countries, of course, are founding members of what's called the Arab League, they had 500,000 troops, tanks, planes, the element of surprise, and somehow Israel clobbered them within the course of a week. Uh, Moshe Dayan, if you remember, he was the Israeli general. He's a dude with the eye patch, if you remember him. Um, he was the defense minister at that time, and he needed cash and supplies during the Six-Day War. It was actually my wife's grandfather who, um, and when I met him, we started talking about this stuff, and he said, oh, I was in the Six-Day War, and he starts telling me this incredible story about he was in the military, and his job, because he was serving, um, his job was to get cash and supplies to Moshe Dayan during the Six-Day War, and he said that him and his team, uh, they strapped him with cash, the U.S. dollars. He's like, I look like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, because I was strapped with cash, they dropped me in, and then he goes to Moshe Dayan and gets him the cash during the Six-Day War. Anyway, just nothing, to, has nothing to do with anything, I just want to tell you that, because Kerry's grandfather's a pretty awesome guy. Anyway, so um, Israel has this decisive victory in the Six-Day War, and takes land from the nations that had taken it for themselves. Exactly what Ezekiel said. These nations were livid. And they're like, give us the land back. And Israel said, no, you sought to destroy us. We wiped you out. And so that's how the game is played. We won. And, and so that's the rule, how the rules of war work. Now, so what happens? If I, now, if I can get the next map, this is what Israel looks like. Um, they take this area from Syria called the Golan Heights. They take the West Bank and East Jerusalem from Jordan. They take the Gaza Strip and this whole area of the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt. That's 1967. Let's fast forward to 1979. In 1979, the Carter administration brokers a peace deal with the Egyptians and Israel. And Israel gives back this desert area that's called the Negev. This is there's nothing here. The only thing that is here is Mount Sinai, but that's it. There's no, it's not a strategic location, and it's nothing for the Egyptians either. It was just a national embarrassment to lose it. And, um, 
And I said it was the Carter administration. I actually met President Carter several years ago. Uh, it was probably closer to 20 years ago. In fact, just a picture of me and President Carter. I had hair back then. And, um, but this is at Disney World. We were at the Magic Kingdom. We had just watched the PhilharMagic show with Donald Duck, and I went to go into the restroom that was just across the way, and there was Secret Service um, keeping everyone out of the restroom because you can't go to the restroom when the president is using the restroom. That's one of the things about being president. No matter where you go, you get to go to the bathroom by yourself. And so, I don't know, that's almost worth running, just for that. So anyway, the president comes out, and, uh, and I say to the Secret Service guy, if it would be okay, well, I'll tell you exactly how I did it. I said to the Secret Service, I'm like, hey, it would be okay if I talk to the president. By the way, you don't do this when you're with a president. So I'm like, hey, it would be okay if I talk to him. And, and I'm like, like, would it be okay if I talk to the president? He says, okay. And, uh, and I come over. I wanted to talk about Israel. I want to talk about this moment. And, um, but I was wearing a Red Sox cap. He's a huge, he was, uh, he's a huge Braves fan. And uh, he wanted to talk baseball. And so when I want to talk Israel and the president wants to talk baseball, you talk baseball. By the way, I'll tell you one thing that's interesting about this picture is that if you've been to the Philhar Magic thing at the Magic Kingdom, you've got to wear the special glasses. Um, he still has the glasses. And I don't know if you know this, but you're supposed to give the glasses back. <laughs> he decided not to give the glasses back. So anyway, maybe that's one of the other perks of being president too. You get to keep the gla 3D glasses. But anyway, now not a big deal to give back the Negev, the, the Sinai Peninsula, but they do it. You can take that down. Nobody's going to pay attention to me. Uh, but Egypt wanted it back because losing it was a national embarrassment. Now, two things happened because of this peace agreement in 1979. The first is that now we have created a precedent that we call land for peace. And this is something that you'll hear about, but this is where it began. The second thing is, if I can get the map back, is that Israel says, okay, you want it back? You can have the Negev back and you can take back Gaza. And they're like, no. We don't want Gaza. Like, is Gaza's yours? We took it. We're giving it back to you. Like, no, we don't want it. Like, please take it. We don't want it. Like, no, no, no. You took it. You keep it. Gaza has been problematic forever. Since the Egyptians had it, it's been a problem. And so now Israel is stuck with it. More on that in a minute. Jordan, uh, uh, Israel takes the West Bank and East Jerusalem from the Jordanians and now, the thing you have to understand is that it's really only in recent years that Jerusalem has been a site that is cared about by Muslims. Now, I know that the, uh, Muslims will teach that it's the third holiest place in, uh, in all of Islam, but historically, it has been largely ignored. It's been ignored until uh, it gets taken from them, and then they get very, they, like, they've got to have it, it's so important. But once again, when they control it, they pretty much ignore it. Anyway, and I'll give you an example. If you and I were living in East Jerusalem in 1965 when Jordan controlled it, we, would, we couldn't do anything in Jerusalem. We would have to actually cross the Jordan River into Amman, which is right about here, which is the capital of Jordan. And we would, that's where we would turn on our phone service. That's where we would turn, get our power turned on. That's where we would vote. Nothing happened in uh, Jerusalem. That's why losing it wasn't that big of a deal. In 1994, when Israel and Jordan brokered a peace deal, uh, they didn't want East Jerusalem back or the West Bank. They just said, give us water from the Sea of Galilee. That's what we want. And that's the deal primarily is that they want water from the Sea of Galilee. Why? Because when you live in the desert, water is life. Now, Israel and Syria are still uh, hostile because 
Israel will not give back the Golan Heights. I've been to the Golan Heights, and it's too strategic of a location. The gun turrets that Syria would use to fire on people who lived in, this is the Sea of Galilee, to live on the, to fire on the people living in the Galilee region, it's just, there's no way. There's no way. In fact, um, just this past year, uh, and I, this is something I just read recently, the, um, uh, Vladimir Putin has been getting involved up talking about the Golan Heights because he wants uh, Israel to give it up, and if they don't give it back to Syria, that they give it back to some international community. And, so, and Israel has just said, we'll negotiate on a lot, but we're not giving up the Golan Heights. So now, this is all important because one of the things that we've been saying is God's saying all the land that was taken by their enemies, he's giving back to them. Now, you said, well, Pastor, you said something about the Palestinian refugee crisis. Let's talk about that. Let's back up and give some context. Prior to Israel gaining its independence in 1948, right around that time, the 1940s, uh, 850,000 Jews were expelled from Arab countries and had to flee and became refugees. No one ever talks about this. 650,000 went to Israel, what be, had later became Israel, and uh, 200,000 came to America. Now, in 1948, when Israel became a nation, there were 150,000 Jews living in Iraq. Today, there are less than 10. You're like, 10,000? No, I mean 10 people, 10 Jews living in Iraq. In 1948, there were 75,000 Jews living in Egypt. Today, less than 20 Jews living in Egypt. And, this is, and the reason that um, nobody talks about it and that we want to talk about, everyone wants to talk about the Palestinian refugee crisis, so let's talk about it. When the War of Independence broke out in, on May 15, 1948, there were about 700,000 Arabs living in Israel, and they fled, even though Israel told them not to leave, that they would be taken care of. They were told by Arab leaders to leave, and that once Israel was destroyed, they would return. And by the way, the first president of Syria in his autobiography talks about this. He says, there is a, there is a Palestinian refugee crisis because we created it. We told them to leave, expecting Israel to be wiped out, and they weren't. So it created the problem. So what do you do with all of these displaced people? Right now, people are asking this question with what's happening with Palestinians living in Gaza. Uh, there are some democratic lawmakers who are suggesting that the U.S. should absorb the refugees. The question that we should be asking is, why doesn't the Muslim world or the Arab world absorb them? 85% of Palestinians that are living in the West Bank are Muslim. 99% of uh, Palestinians living in Gaza are are, are Muslim. So is there not enough room? And, and so let me show you this map. This is what the Muslim world looks like. Everything in green. All right. Now you might ask yourself, can we carve out some space for some refugees? Now, if you're saying, hold on, where's Israel? You see that little dot right there? That's Israel. So the question is, it's like, what's happening all over here that, can't, that, that folks can't absorb what's, what's taking place. Now, Israel makes up one-tenth of one percent of all Arab and Muslim land. Now think about it, not 10 percent, not one percent, one-tenth of one percent. Now, and by the way, don't email me about this. It's like, well, not all Arabs are Muslim. Yeah, I know that not all Arabs are Muslim and not all Muslims are Arab. However, in Arab countries, the majority, in every Arab country, the majority of people are Muslim. So I'm speaking with a shorthand, so forgive me. Anyway, but the Muslim world, the Arab world, could easily solve this crisis tomorrow and just take them in. 
There's plenty of room. And, uh, and the Arab world, uh, they could solve this crisis tomorrow. So why isn't it solved? The reason why it's not solved is why every problem in the world isn't solved. You may want to write down this word. The word is politics. This is why it's not solved. Because this, this crisis is how the enemies of Israel beat Israel up politically and have created a billion-dollar enterprise. The UN has a group of people, a, 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 a subcommittee, essentially, uh, that funds these refugees. And it is a billion dollar a year enterprise that is primarily funded by the United States and the European Union to deal with this crisis, and it hasn't been fixed. Why? Because if you fix the crisis, the billion dollars a year go away. And this is, uh, and listen, okay. There is a reason why Social Security is never going to get fixed in this country. And there's a few reasons why. One is, is because everyone wants to campaign on the fact that Social Security is broken. And if you elect me, I will fix Social Security. But it's like we've been told that story for 40 years. If, you, if all of us said, we're not going to lunch today until we solve this, we could have this solved in the better part of an hour. But why? Are we smarter? Well, yeah, we are smarter than them. Um, but, but here's why, is because you and I are not bought and paid for by uh, special interest groups. We're not seeking election or re-election. We could just assess the problem and say, you know what it takes? It takes, it's going to take some hard things to do. But nobody wants to do hard things because everybody wants the money to keep flowing and everybody wants to get re-elected. This is the problem. The refugee crisis is the same thing. Just follow the money. This is why every peace deal that has been offered by Israel to the Palestinians has been rejected. Listen, the last time they went to the peace table, they were given everything. And uh, I believe it was Ehud Barak that threw in East Jerusalem as well. And the Palestinians said no with no counteroffer. Why? Because peace is bad for business. And if you create a Palestinian state, then all that refugee money goes away. And that's also bad for business. Listen, um, this is not a nuanced conversation. Everybody wants to talk about that this, oh, this is a nuanced conversation. It's really not. Where you go for lunch today is a more nuanced conversation than, than, than all of this. Because you've got one group that doesn't believe the other group should even exist. And you've got the other group that realizes if they lay down their weapons for one day, it's over. In fact, I was telling a friend th um, this week, if, if Israel decided tomorrow that they're going to lay down all their weapons, it's done. We're going to lay down our weapons. The following day, Israel would cease to exist. If Hamas and the Palestinians laid down their weapons tomorrow, the following day, there would be peace. And I know, and don't, don't come at me and be like, well, you know that, uh, that Hamas and, and Palestinians aren't the same thing. I, I understand that, but understand this. Hamas is the majority of, elected, uh, of the elected government of the Palestinian Authority. And by the way, the last poll that I saw showed that a majority of Palestinians are favorable towards Hamas. I'm sorry, this is not a nuanced conversation. All right? So if I haven't made you mad, then let's keep going. All right. And I, I'm only five verses in. All right, let me... Um, Let's go. Verse 6. Check this out. It says, Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, and the valleys, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and my fury because you have borne the shame of the nations. Thus says the Lord God, I have raised my hand in an oath that surely the nations that are around you shall bear their own shame. But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth 
your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are about to come. Underline this, for indeed I am for you and will turn to you and you will be tilled and sown. I will multiply men on you on the house of Israel, all of it, and the cities will be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. I will multiply upon you man and beast and they shall increase and bear young. I will make you inhabited as in former times and do better for you than at the beginnings. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Yes, I will cause men to walk on you, my people Israel, and they shall take possession of you, and you shall be their inheritance. No more shall you bereave them of children. If you pause there and give me your attention. Second thing, we said that Israel has a right to exist. The second thing is, is that Israel is flourishing in their land. In 1860, Mark Twain took a trip to the Middle East. He wrote about it in a book that's called uh, The Innocents Abroad. It was one of his first books. And he talks about in the book that going to the Holy Land, he said that he had never seen a bigger wasteland than Palestine. And he had never seen a more despicable ghost town than Jerusalem. Why? Because when Jerusalem was destroyed, it was a literal wasteland for more than a millennia. And that all began to change when one man named Theodore Herzl wrote a pamphlet in 1896 called The Jewish Homeland. He established what was called the Zionist Congress and said that the Jews would never be safe until they had a homeland of their own. How did Herzl come to that conclusion? He was a Jewish reporter covering the trial of what would be called later the Dreyfus Affair. Now, the Dreyfus Affair was the trial of a captain in the French army named Alfred Dreyfus. It was 1895. Uh, he was Jewish, but he was, he was serving as a French officer, was accused of treason and giving information to the Germans. Another officer was implicated named Ferdinand Esterhazy, but was found not guilty, even though there was evidence linking him to the treason. It, there was no evidence linking Dreyfus, but he was found guilty and sentenced. Later, he was exonerated. But from that moment on, Herzl realized that uh, the Jewish people would never be safe until they had a homeland of their own and modern Zionism was born. If we fast forward about 20 years, we get to General Allenby, who is the leader of the, uh, of the British forces. He takes control of the Middle East and sets up his forces in Jerusalem. And Allenby was very favorable towards the Jews because of the anti-Semitism that he saw. He also believed that there was a debt to repay. Now, what do I mean by that? World War I was not going well for the British in their fight against the Germans. But there was a Jewish physicist in London whose name was Chaim Weissman. Chaim Weissman had developed a new type of munition that turned the tide of the war, and the British wanted to reward him. And him, being influenced by Herzl, said that all he wanted was for the Jewish people to be allowed to go home. And this is how what's called the Belfort Declaration was worked out where Britain then made this declaration that of their desire for the establishment of a Jewish homeland in ancient Israel. Around the same time, this is, or before that, probably about 20 years before in the late uh, 1890s or so, there was this migration of Jewish people all over the world going back to Israel. And it was something that we had never seen. For, like I said, for 1,800 years, and there was just, people were just moving there. It was almost like magnetic. People just felt drawn to it. And so people started moving from everywhere in the world and all over to Israel, started buying back the land from these absentee owners because nobody wanted to be there. And so they started making things grow again. 
They converted swamps and desert land into this blossoming agriculture kibbutzim, or uh, that's a Jewish word for these communes. They increased economic opportunity in Palestine, and because there was greater economic uh, opportunity, more and more Muslims began, began gravitating towards this region to take advantage of the economic boom. And once again, that's just what happens. A new industry begins, homes get built, and then people just start flocking there. That's just that, that happens here, that happens everywhere. Now, we fast forward a little bit to the 1930s and the rise of uh, Nazi Germany, and most of you know the story. The Holocaust claims the lives of six million Jewish people, and the world begins to see what Theodore Herzl has been saying for the better part of 50 years. And, uh, and by the way, let me say this as an aside. The Holocaust was more than just Hitler's choice to hate the Jewish people. Adolf Hitler was obsessed with the occult, he was obsessed with demonic teachings, and I believe completely demon-possessed. And that influenced and fueled his hatred and desire to exterminate the Jewish people. Why? Because the hatred of the Jewish people has always been part of Satan's plan. From the killing of the male Hebrew babies in the book of Exodus in the Nile River, to uh, Haman's desire to wipe out the Jews uh, in the time of Esther in Persia, to Herod killing the Hebrew children, uh, in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. Killing the Jewish people is always satanic in its origin. But when the, when the UN voted to give Israel their homeland, uh, Jordan became a, a, a country only two years before in 1946. Uh, at the time, it was called the Hashemite Kingdom of Transjordan. But the UN's goal, uh, well, let me show you the picture first. Let me show you the map. Initially, this was going to be the British mandate to create a Jewish state. It was going to be all of Israel and all of Jordan. The Arabs got very upset, so they took, uh, the, the British took 75% of it and carved it out for, Arabs, for an Arab state, and then 25% and carved it for a Jewish state. Now, here's the thing that I find very odd, and that is, no one questions Jordan's right to their land, even though the Jordanians have no ancient connection to it. They are not part of the ancient people who first dwelt there, which were the people of Edom, Ammon, and Moab. They were certainly not part of the group that was there in the New Testament, which were the, Na the kingdom of the Nabataeans. They had no connection to that. Jordan, uh, by the way, uh, King Abdullah, King Abdullah I, who was the first king of Jordan, wasn't even Jordanian. He wasn't born in, in, in that area. He was born in Saudi Arabia at Mecca, as was his brother. And so at, when he was, uh, he was given the kingship of Jordan, and then he was also offered the kingship of uh, the crown in Iraq. He turned down the throne in Iraq, and his brother, Faisal, becomes the king of Iraq. So you have two brothers that are ruling two different countries next to each other. Abdullah dies. His son, Abdullah II, uh, rules in his place. Faisal dies, and his son begins to rule in his place, and you probably remember his name. His name was Saddam Hussein. Okay, now, but all of, as I mentioned, all of Israel and Jordan were going to be part of this, part of this new, new state. They went Arabs went crazy. They split it. Now, by the way, we talked about Iraq. Iraq is a country that didn't exist until after World War I. But no, but why? Because Iraq, Iraq is Babylon. That was the Babylonian Empire for thousands of years. So why is no one questioning their right to exist? Because this is not an economic problem, this is not a geographic problem, and this is not a sociological problem. This is a spiritual problem because you cannot negotiate with people who do not believe that you don't have the right to exist. Okay, now, you guys doing okay? 
Yeah, am I like killing you with all the History Channel stuff? Or are you doing all right? So, all right. So, let's go to verse 16. And I'm going to have you underline some stuff, so just hang with me. All right. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood they shed on the land and for their idols, which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations. And you might want to write scattered them. That's the word diaspora. Okay. Now, and they were dispersed throughout the countries and I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. And when they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my name. And they said of them, these are the people of the Lord and they've gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name which the house of Israel has profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord, this is what I want you to underline, the next phrase, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for, the, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed before their eyes. And you want to underline this, verse 24. For I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. By the way, that's priestly language. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols, and I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it. I will bring no famine upon you. I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your field so that never again will you bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. For Not for your sake I do this. Once again, you may want to underline that. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded in your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God. I'll get that in just a second. I ordered a pizza. It's been a long day. Anyway, on the, <laughs> on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land will be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. And so they will say this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And... The wasted, desolate, ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. And this is what, uh, underline this. Then the nations which are left all around you, you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. And I, the Lord, have spoken it and will do it. Thus says the Lord God, I also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock offered as holy sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem on its feast days, so that the ruined cities will be filled with flocks of men, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Now, if you pause there, I know it's a lot to read, but stick with me. Last thing I want to tell you is that Israel exists because it's God's will. Now, one of the questions that would be important for us to answer is like, how big is this land that we're talking about, right? 
I mean, is it like as big as California or Texas? Uh, well, let me show you compared to Florida. Israel is slightly larger than Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach County. It's like, all right, but like, let's say like England, right? It's like the size of England, right? Well, look, this is Israel compared to Great Britain. Once again, as I said, it is one-tenth of one percent of Arab or Muslim lands. And this is why it just seems a bit ridiculous for Arab nations to be so up in arms about a country that just barely even registers on the radar of the size of lands. Why is it? It's because it's not economic, it's not geographical, uh, it is spiritual. And then, but in the same way that they hate Israel, God loves the Jewish people. And that's why they survive even when other nations come against them. And that's why these verses say, God's saying, I sent you out into the nations. You were scattered. And people were saying, aren't these God's people? How could they be scattered? And God is saying, I'm going to do this for my name's sake so that people will see that I still have a plan for the Jewish people. And he says, I'm going to multiply the Jewish people like, like a flock, and they're going to be like Israel on feast days. In Jesus' day, there would be about a million people in Jerusalem to celebrate the three major feasts. Right now, there's about a million people who live there on a permanent basis uh, in, in the city of Jerusalem. And he gives this promise that there'll be a spiritual awakening as well that's yet coming. And it's yet future. But so many people have seen the survival of Israel as a nation for these last 75 years and just say the only way that it could even happen is because it's the hand of God. So let's bring this home. And let's talk about what it means for us. I mean, what does it mean for us as believers as we look at all of this? Here's, here's the first thing. Number one is that I can trust God with my future. If God can move nations and cause a country to be regathered and reborn, then certainly God can be trusted with what's happening in your life right now. Because even though things might seem like they're totally out of control, things are happening according to God's ultimate plans. You know, one of the things that I love is that when you read the days of creation in Genesis, it says that there was evening and morning. Jewish days always start in the evening because it was evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day. But it's a reminder to us that while we're sleeping, God's working. That's why I love in the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And the fact that God has a plan for the end of history proves that he can handle the bumps in the road that are happening in your life and in mine. Second thing why this is so important is that I should be reflecting Jesus in this world. The reality that we are living in the last days and that the return of Jesus is nearer than ever should influence how we live, and it should influence what we live for. The Apostle John, one of the 12, he said it this way, Dear friends, we are already God's children, but it has not, he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is, and all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure, just as he is pure. The reality of Jesus' return should influence and motivate us to live the kind of life that honors God and reflects who he is. This is why everything you do to grow in your faith is influencing you, influencing you to live the kind of life that God can bless, the kind of life that God dreams for you to have. And as we enter these days, we need to be more spiritually minded than ever. And then the last thing I want to tell you is this, that God wants to do more than you ask. 
Um, I don't know if you know this, but the Zionist Congress um, that was started in the late 1890s, they, they had a great deal of support um, outside to establish a Jewish homeland in now what's part of what's uh, part of what's considered the country of Uganda. So the idea was that there would be a place in Africa for the Jewish people to have a home. And the reason is because the Jews believed that there, it was impossible to get their homeland back. It was too long. There was no support. The land was completely desolate. But as there was confusion over this and people were wondering, it was Theodore Herzl who stood up and quoted Psalm 137 and then everyone said, Israel must be the place. In Psalm 137, verse 5, it says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. My point is, is that whether it's a battle for peace in the world or it's a battle for peace in your world, God is working. And this is the moment, listen, that we trust him, that God is going to do it. God is going to do whatever the promise is that he has for you, he's going to fulfill it. Whatever the work is that he has to do in you, he's going to complete it. And this is the moment where we get to trust. As they saw God do exceedingly abundantly above all that they could ask or think, that's what God wants to do in your life, in my life, in our lives. Let's trust him. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that. We thank you for that promise. We thank you for the incredible work that you have done in history with your people Israel. And you're not done because there is the promise in Romans where Paul says that all Israel will be saved. They will uh, come to experience the saving knowledge of the Messiah, Jesus, and be transformed forever. So we look forward to that day. May it change our hearts. May it change how we live to be a people who rightly reflect you. And we pray it in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.